Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, What do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Tori, Pete, and Jeannie, um, for leading us in worship. There's this lie going around, and it has been for some time, and it affects all of us every day. Uh, it affects our relationships, it affects how we view ourselves. Uh, this lie affects how we view others, and ultimately this lie affects how we view God. And this lie is hidden just below the surface of our everyday lives. And the lie is that genuine life, living the good life, is the absence of authority. To be truly alive, to truly live, you have to be the ones with your hands on the controls of your own life. To have true freedom, you have to be the ones that has complete autonomy. True living is to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and nobody else can determine that for you. No person, no thing, no institution, no government, no culture can import their rule and standard on your life because you have your own and your uh, rule and standard for your life. And this, this lie that's hidden in plain sight, it produces chaos, it produces broken relationships, it produces pain, it produces um, darkness, and ultimately it produces death. And we know, we know this is a lie, because you can just look around and you can see it in your own life and you can see it in others' lives, because when, whenever you're living the good life, your freedom, your true living of no authority, autonomy, individualism, meets and confronts somebody else's own life of individualism, no authority, autonomy, 
autonomy, there's what? There's a conflict there. And we see this in, you know, little kids when they're, like, playing a game or something, and then one of them's losing, and then they just decide to change the rules all of a sudden, and then they make the other person lose, right? There was something about that person that didn't like the authority of the rules to govern the fact that they were losing, and so they switched the rules, and then they made the other person lose, and then they have to cry in a conflict because they don't know how to deal with their own emotions, and it's just a whole thing. There's, this happens in middle school and high school with peer pressure, right? When a group of kids decide what it means to live the good life, to have freedom, to be cool, to be in, and then if you don't make it in there, you're then picked on, bullied, ostracized, isolated until you have no really identity on your own. This happens with young adults, college kids, in relationships, and dating relationships, and sexual relationships, and pornography, when the freedom is the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, then that means I'm able to express my sexuality with whomever I want, whenever I want, and if not with a partner, then with a website. And it produces chaos and darkness. This happens with parents and children. This happens with husbands and wives. This conflict happens with bosses, with employees. You've all been a part of this conflict. It happens with families. It happens with entire cities. It happens with states and nations. It happens with nations and nations, if you look at what's going on in the world today. And ultimately, it happens with all of humanity and God. And this, this lie that true, genuine life is the absence of authority is killing us from the inside out. And the, the solutions to this lie that are being offered to us today is like giving a, a lollipop to a starving man. It's like sweet and tasteful and a sugar rush in the moment, but it actually does far more harm than good. And the sad reality is, is that you and I buy into these lollipop solutions all the time. We buy into the lollipop solution that indulgence is the way to happiness, if you're hungry, don't just eat until you're satisfied. Eat until you're stuffed sick. If you're thirsty, don't just drink until you're satisfied. Drink until you forget. If you don't have it, you need it, you're your own God. Click a button, and it'll be on your door the next day. We buy into these lollipop solutions that you, since you're your own authority, you have to define yourself, and then you have to defend yourself. We define ourselves by, you know, if we're married, if we're single, if we have kids, if we don't have kids, what you wear, what you don't wear, because you're your own authority and it, true living is the absence of authority, you then have to go through this exhausting process of defining yourself by um, um, who you hang out with, who you don't hang out with, who, where you work, where you don't work, what school you go to, what political party you're associated with, what political party you're definitely not associated with, your nationality, your ethnicity, your family of origin, your Enneagram number, your personality test, the list goes on and on. And then once you define yourself, as if that's not exhausting enough, you have to then defend yourself because since you're your own authority, nobody else is going to understand you, and so they are then a threat to you being who you really want to be. We buy into this lollipop solution of up and to the right. Bigger is always better. And means more. It's literally written on our gas stations. If you don't have it, you need it. And this is why uh, some of us are the most confused, lonely people on the planet, even though we're seemingly the most connected generation humanity has ever seen, all because we settle for the sugar rush of a lollipop. And this lie, uh, this lie that absence of authority is true living, it doesn't just affect our lives today. It's affected all of humanity for all of time, and it actually started back in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve did what? They said, you know, true life is the absence of authority, so I am going to be my own God. 
I am going to define my own life. Nobody can give me, nobody else can tell me what to do. So we, we, it, it happened in Genesis 2, it happened in all of humanity ever since then, and so we settle for the sugar rush of a lollipop because it's quick, it's easy, it's there, rather than being able to dine at the feast of a king because the reality is we don't want a king. Why? Because a king means that somebody else has authority over my life. And this lie that humanity has been facing from the garden is also the lie that Jesus addresses in this passage in Mark today. This lie that affects all of us to our core, where we have broken relationships, we have sin struggles, we have this, anxi- this constant underlying anxiety in our lives because we try to hang on to our own lives and protect ourselves, is exactly the lie that Jesus addresses, confronts, and overturns in this passage today. Jesus says that true living, true freedom, true genuine flourishing as a human is not the absence of authority, but rather the presence of it. It is not hanging on to your own life. It is rather giving up your life. Ultimately, Jesus says in this passage, if you want to truly live, you have to die. And that's a bold claim for Jesus. It's a bold claim for the gospel according to Mark. It's also a bold claim for a new church plant to launch their opening Sunday with a text like this. But here we are. And in order to make sense of Jesus' words as he addresses and confronts this lie, we need to understand the gospel of Mark as a whole. We're in Mark chapter 8 today. But in order to make sense of Jesus' words, we have to understand the gospel according to Mark as a whole to give a little context uh, to what we're going to be looking at today. But before we do that, I'd love to pray um, before we dive into the text. Because we, we, we know and we believe and we admit that the Holy Spirit is the best teacher of his own word. So let's go to him right now and let's ask him to teach us and open our eyes. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you did not leave us um, to fall prey to the lies of the enemy, but rather you provide a way out and you give us yourself. Uh, Lord, I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see um, your truths. You would open our eyes to understand um, what you have to say for us, Lord. I ask that you would convict my heart uh, and my mind and convict all of our hearts and all of our minds. And uh, as the preachers of old used to say, Lord, stand in my body, think in my mind, and speak in my mouth. We love you. Um, We give you this time together. We pray all these things in your son's name. And all God's people said... Amen. All right, overall, the gospel according to Mark does two things. It shows us who Jesus is through stories, through narratives, through encounters with other people. And then actually the gospel of Mark invites us to follow Jesus. And we get this overall uh, purpose from the structure of the book. So books are designed in certain ways. Books have a purpose. And the structure of the book is actually divided into three different parts. And this is my super original and detailed drawing uh, that I made by myself. And uh, basically, the gospel according to Mark is divided into three chunks. The first chunk is chapters one through eight, and it answers this question, who is Jesus? Over and over, we'll see this in a second, over and over, all these people are asking, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus? The middle section, Jesus actually three times tells people what it means to be the Messiah. The first time is our text that we're going to be looking at today. And the final section, which we'll get to in the following weeks of Palm Sunday and Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday, is uh, it shows us 
how Jesus actually like lives into this role of a Messiah. So he defines Messiah as actually one who suffers, not as a um, one who you know kicks off the bad guys. Excuse me. And then in chapters 11 to 16, he actually shows us what that means uh, to be the Messiah. So in, in the first section, we get this question, who is Jesus? And Mark shows us who Jesus is by uh, giving us a bunch of stories, right? He casts out demons. He, uh, this is the guy who touches lepers. He forgives sins. Uh, he is unafraid of social and ethnic boundaries. Um, and over and over, characters actually ask the question, who is this guy? So like in chapter one, they say, who is this guy? He teaches with authority, not as the scribes. Later they ask, who is this guy? He forgives sins. Nobody can forgive sins except God alone. When he calms the storm, uh, with, when he's in the boat with his disciples, they ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So you have this constant repetition of people are like, okay, this guy's different. This guy's uh, you know, interesting. He 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 does all these things. He goes back home to Nazareth, and they say, "Who is this guy? This is this is Joseph. This is the carpenter's son. I know who this is." Um, they have multiple ideas about who he is. He's a prophet. He's John the Baptist. He's Elijah. And then, uh, while that is happening, it kind of leads us into our uh, our turning point passage today, um, where Jesus actually tells us explicitly not just who he is, but what he's here to do. And so the passage we're in today is in this middle section, and it's a pivotal point. It's like in the Gospel of Mark, it's like after this point, there's hardly any miracles. All of the miracles are in the first section. After this point, there's a lot more controversy. There's a lot more conflict. After this point, a lot of people stop following Jesus. He has tons of crowds, tons of crowds before in the first section. But after this point, a lot of people stop following Jesus. So what I want to do is I actually want to look at verse 22 of chapter 8, um, read through it, and then we're going to walk through it and talk through it and uh, go from there. So follow along with me in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says this, they, which is the disciples and Jesus, came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him, Jesus, and begged him to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand, brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes, ew, and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up and he said, I see, I see people, they look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he said to him, or I'm sorry, then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, this is the question, who do people say that I am? They answered him, well, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say that you're one of the prophets. Verse 29, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned him, uh, them to tell no one about him. Okay, so you have this picture of Jesus healing a blind man twice, right? There's a blind man. Jesus takes him by the hand, leads him out. He heals him twice, which is interesting, right? He spits on his eyes the first time. And then the guy like sees kind of, he sees partially, but he sees people and they look like trees walking around. And then he heals him again, opens his eyes again, and then he sees fully. The point, the blind man saw partially at first, but he did not see fully. Okay? Remember, keep that. The blind man saw partially the first time, but he did not see fully. 
until Jesus had to open his eyes again. So then we get to Jesus on the road with his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? The question of the Gospel of Mark. And um, they say, you know, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, by the way, two chapters prior to this, in chapter six, was beheaded. And there was a big uh, group of people that actually thought because John the Baptist was such a man of God that he actually was raised from the dead. So people are like, oh, Jesus, you're just John the Baptist again, I don't know, uh, raised from the dead. Some people said he was Elijah, right? Elijah was this promised prophet of God that when Elijah would come, he would bring in the rule and the reign and the kingdom of God. So people are like, oh, this dude's clearly Elijah because the rule and the reign and the kingdom of God are coming. And then some people say that he's just another prophet who just yells at Israel and makes them feel bad about their sins and all that stuff. Um, they do more than that, but they, they don't do less than that. Anyway, so Jesus said, uh, Jesus said, yeah, that's fine. That's fine that other people say that. But what do you, who do you guys say that I am? Now he's talking to his 12. They've been with him for some time now, probably about two and a half years, maybe even three years at this point. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. You've been with me for some time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesperson of the group, says that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Messiah and Christ are the same word. You are the anointed one. You are the one that will be king. You are the one in and through whom the kingdom of God will finally come back and you will establish Israel as a national identity and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Peter sees it. Peter gets the answer right. He recognizes it. He understands it. He sees Jesus' identity. This is the first time, by the way, that a human in the Gospel of Mark acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. So what's Jesus' response? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your Father in heaven revealed this to you, right? That's, that's his response in Matthew. But what's his response here? Look at verse 30. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And instead of saying, like, great job, Peter, he says, he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. That word strictly warned is the same word as rebuke, to reprove. Peter said, you're the Messiah, and Jesus' response is that of rebuke, stern warning, strict warning, that you should not tell anybody about him. Now, the question is, why, like if, if I was Peter, I'd be like, I was, was I wrong? Was I, was I not right? Why did Jesus have this response? The answer comes in the next few verses. Let's read verse 31 to 33. Then he... Jesus began to teach the disciples that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed, and to rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, i.e., he wasn't talking in parables. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but about man's and human's concerns. Okay, there's a lot here. Peter answered the question, who are you? You're the Messiah. Jesus' response is that of rebuke. Not good, reprove. Peter, Jesus then decides and defines what it means to be Messiah. You have to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again after three days. Peter then rebukes Jesus. Jesus then rebukes Peter. 
The reason Jesus rebuked them the first time is because they didn't truly understand what it meant to be the Messiah. Peter answered, you're the Messiah, but he only got the answer partially right because after Jesus explained what it meant to be the Messiah, Peter did not like it. In other words, Peter saw partially who Jesus was, but he did not see fully who Jesus was. He saw that, that Jesus was the Messiah, but then Jesus said, to be the Messiah is to suffer, die, and rise again after three days. And Peter said, no, 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 that's not right. And so Peter assumed authority over Jesus and rebuked him. By the way, up until this point, the only person in the Gospel of Mark who rebukes anything is Jesus. And it's typically unclean spirits. You hear the stories of a man possessed with a demon or an unclean spirit came to Jesus. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He rebuked the wind and the waves. And now he's rebuking the disciples. But now who's assuming that authority over Jesus, pulling him aside and rebuking him? Peter, which, by the way, we've all been there in a group of people where, like, you know, someone will say something awkward or kind of offensive, and then somebody is, like, walks up to him, and, can I talk to you for a second, and pulls him aside, and everybody else is just standing there, like, this is really un uncomfortable. That's what happened. So the disciples are clearly seeing this happen, and, like, seeing Peter, like, assume the role of teacher, assume the role of authority, pull Jesus aside and say, that's not, that's not Messiah, that's not what it means to be Messiah. And then Jesus turns around, sees the disciples, and then says, no, 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 you're wrong. And what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, accuser. Get behind me, adversary. You are still blind. What does he say? Get behind me. Not get away from me. Not be far away. Get behind me, i.e., uh, assume and re return to your role as my follower, not somebody who is in my way. Jesus knows that in this moment, Peter assuming his own authority and taking matters into his own hands is the very lies and schemes of Satan himself. Now, before we uh, throw rocks at Peter, we have to understand how, nat like, for, it's easy for us to understand, well, duh, Peter, like, he's going to the cross, like, don't get in his way, this is God's plan, but uh, we have to understand how natural this response would be. God, or Jesus calls it human concerns. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but you're thinking about human concerns in this situation. So what are human concerns in this situation, right? At the end of verse 32, he says, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but you're thinking about human concerns. Well, human concerns in this situation is this idea of Messiah being a, a victorious conqueror, right? Excuse me. Up until this point, Israel has been enslaved by Every nation under the sun, every world power under the sun, Israel is um, uh, conquered by them. They're, Rome especially just heavily taxed them, and so it was hard to live like a good life, and they were just exhausted of being slaves to all of these world powers. And actually, I think sometimes we think of, uh, when we especially read the Old Testament, we think Israel in the Bible times is like this powerful nation. It wasn't. It was like, you know, a blip on the radar. It was like, uh, you know, like... What the cats away, the mice come out and play. Well, the cats in the Bible are like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, and, and Israel is just a little mouse. You know, they just like they're just to and fro with whatever the cat decides to do. If that makes any sense, that that analogy got away from me. Whatever. Um, 
So the idea of a Messiah would be one to throw off this, to finally set up Israel as a national identity because they haven't had a national identity in centuries. The role of the Messiah was to be one who was going to go to Jerusalem with a sword in his hand and kick off the Romans and the bad guys. That was just what it meant to be Messiah. It wasn't even like thought of that there would be anything other than this as the Messiah. Human concerns is also that the Messiah, once he was victorious and he beat the bad guys, his closest friends and buddies would also be like glorified. They would also be crowned. They would also get, you know, like to, you know, do the victory lap, so to speak. So Peter is thinking, okay, Jesus is Messiah. And if he's Messiah, then guess what? I also get to partake in some of this glory whenever he wins. Uh, and so, so for, for Peter to think about human concerns, uh, he is thinking that he, it's, it's a selfish motive, right? Peter has this selfish motive, and those are human concerns in this situation. Now, what about God's concerns in this situation? Well, God's concerns are bigger. They're not just limited to one point in time with one uh, emperor, with one um, country. God's concern is not kill or be killed. God's concern is deeper, Because God's concern realizes what Jesus is saying is that he realizes that the true enemy is not the person or the government or the world emperor of the time. The true enemy is sin and death, and it is killing everybody. The true enemy is this lie that we've all been believing since the garden. The true enemy is that sin leads to death, and God's love for humanity demands that it is necessary to die. It's not just a good idea. It not just didn't have to happen. It is necessary to die to become the curse and sin for us. Because think about this. What is the only thing that can beat death? Resurrection, right? The only, or living forever, but nobody does that. What is the only thing that can beat death? Resurrection. What does resurrection require? Death. You have to die before you are raised from the dead. So for Peter to step in front of Jesus and say, you're not going to die, is to, to ask for the very thing that will prohibit him from getting life. And these are God's concerns. And so seeing this as a teaching opportunity, verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd with his disciples, and he says to them, he says to them this, um, verse, yeah, verse 34, he says to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. In this moment, Jesus is saying that if it's necessary for the Son of Man, for the Messiah to suffer and die, it is necessary for his disciples and his followers to suffer and die. If it's necessary that Jesus the Messiah be rejected and go to the cross, it is necessary that those who want to partake in his life also must participate and partake in his death and follow him to there. He is inviting us to not just participate in his life. He is inviting us in this moment and anyone, anyone who wants to be a Christian, who wants to follow Jesus, he is telling them you have to do these things. He first says to deny yourself. John Calvin, the, uh, one, of the, one of the reformers, he says, if he, he was summarizing the life of a disciple, the life of a Christian, and he, just, he summarized it in one phrase, and that phrase was self-denial. If you were to ask, if John Calvin was here today, and you were to ask him, what does it mean to follow Christ, he would say one word, self-denial. We have an allergic reaction to self-denial in an age of indulgence and consumerism. 
the idea of self-denial is not popular today. I mean, we literally have phrases like treat yourself. When was the last time you saw a phrase that said deny yourself? Like that is just not, it's just not a thing, right? Because we are our own gods and we have this allergic reaction to anything that would deny me. It's almost more like self, when we hear the phrase self-denial, odds are if you were to describe it to somebody or to ourselves, we would say that's more like self-hate than it is self-denial. But who doesn't view self-denial as self-hate? Think about athletes. Athletes deny themselves of things all the time for a desired end, for a specific goal, for a specific performance, right? They deny themselves of sleep by getting up super early and just working out, and they deny themselves of, of, of foods, certain foods, right? Sugars and fats and processed things and all the bad things for your body. They deny themselves of like a luxurious lifestyle because they can't just, they can't just do whatever they want. They have a regimented schedule. They deny themselves of spontaneity sometimes. They do the same thing over and over and over again. They go to practice day after day. They do the same uh, routes or, or exercises or whatever over and over and over again. And they don't call that self-hate. They call that like practice for, for the betterment of their craft or whatever. But if we're being honest with ourselves, if we did things that extreme for our spiritual lives, like athletes do for our physical lives, we would probably call it legalism. And we'd probably call it religion. If we denied ourselves sleep to spend more time with the Lord, we would probably call it legalism. If we denied ourselves food to follow God's command to fast, we would probably call it legalism. If we denied ourselves work one day a week, all work one day a week to follow God's command to rest, we would probably call it legalism. If we denied ourselves the ability to spend our money however we wanted for the sake of the gospel, we would probably call it legalism. Yet here, Jesus says, this is not legalism. This is what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to deny yourself. To be a disciple means that uh, what Paul says, you have to crucify your flesh You have to deny your fleshly base desires, your disordered desires, in order that you might follow Jesus in his desires. If it was necessary for Jesus to deny himself, it's necessary for us as his followers to deny ourselves. Next, he says, take up your cross. Deny yourselves, take up your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who's a martyr uh, uh, in World War II, famously says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When you say yes to Christ, you are saying yes to crucifying your flesh. You are saying yes to killing your sin. The the cross was turned into an art form by the Romans where they would make the participants, make the executioners carry their own cross with them to where they were going to die, which means that they have to almost acknowledge what they were doing. There's a willing participatory nature in crucifixion. It's inhumane, and it's egregious, and it's awful. But what Christ is saying in this moment is that if you want to follow him, you have to willingly participate in killing your sin. You have to willingly participate in picking up your cross. Now, for Jesus, what led him to the cross was love, not like sin or a burden. So that means what for us, what should lead us to our cross is love as well. 
Then he says, follow me. This is what it means to follow me. If anybody wants to be my disciple, to be the one who follows me, to, 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 to listen to Jesus and to love him, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now, the reward for this, if you were to weigh the, the cost, the reward for this far outweighs the cost. And Jesus gives us three reasons why we should do these things. And they're in verse 35, 36, and 38. The first reason is this. Look at verse 35. This is a reason why we should deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him. For, <clears throat> for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. The benefit of giving up your life is that you save it. When we try to hang on when we try to control, when we try to build up our own kingdom, when we try to sit in the driver's seat, when we try to exercise our own authority and demand that nobody can tell us what to do, we will lose our life. But we will, and we will die far before we physically die, and we will die far after we physically die. But if we surrender for Christ and the gospel, if we literally lose ourselves for Christ and the gospel and deny ourselves and follow Jesus to the cross, we will save our life and we will have life and what the Bible calls life abundant far before we physically die and far after we physically die. We will have eternal life. The second reason Jesus gives is in verse 36 and 37, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and, let you, and yet lose his life? What can anybody give in exchange for his life? The answer is nothing. You can't give anything in exchange for your life. Why? Because you wouldn't have a life if you did that, right? What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? Nothing. Jim Elliott, the martyr in Ecuador, missionary in Ecuador, famously says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do we have that mentality? We have the mentality today of, are we trying to gain the whole world? Because if we are, we are forfeiting our souls. Verse 38 is the final reason. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We can't just count the cost of following Jesus. We also have to count the cost of not following Jesus. To be ashamed of Jesus in this age, to be ashamed of the gospel in this age, is to have Jesus be ashamed of us when he returns. Jesus calls anybody who wants to be a disciple to deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me. But the reward to say yes to Jesus is to say no to a thousand other things, but the reward for it is life and life abundant. So there, there you have it. That's what Jesus says. That is what Jesus calls his disciples to, to do. That's the, the vision he corrects with Peter. Now, if you're like me, you feel a tension in this, right? This is, this is intense. This is extreme. This is intense. If you're like me, you feel a tension because I want both right? I want, I want uh, uh, selflessness, but I also want to be in the driver's seat. I want to be generous, but I also want to be rich. I want to be and follow Jesus, but I also want to live like a celebrity. I want character, but I don't want the suffering that produces character. I want humility, but I don't want humiliation. 
I want patience, but I don't want to have to wait. I want kindness, but I don't want agitating people to deal with. I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to sit in silence and listen. I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want the cross of Jesus. Ultimately, we want the kingdom, the benefits, the peace, the love, the justice, the mercy, without the king. We want the lollipop solution without the feast of a king. And so because of that, we make excuses. God would call a missionary to do that, but he would never call me to do that. God would call uh, that person or that small group leader or that pastor to spend that much time in the Bible, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't call, call me to do that. God might call uh, uh, somebody who's radically in their faith to give up their time, their money, their resources, their efforts to selflessly die to themselves so that they can, they can live true life, but he wouldn't call me to do that. But let me ask you this question. Do you truly want to live? Do you truly want to have life today and life abundant Do you truly want to have life far before you physically die and life far after you physically die? Do you truly want to be filled with the spirit of the living God? Do you truly want to be alive? Do you truly want to be uh, free from the enslavement of sin? Do you truly want to be free from the stress and the pressure and the anxiety and the fear that comes from you trying to hold on so tightly to everything you have? Because if you do, the answer is simple. It is not easy. It is free, but it is not cheap. And it is look to Jesus and follow him. The answer is look to Jesus and follow him. It is simple. It is far from easy. It is free, but it is far from cheap. St. Ignatius says this, and I think this quote perfectly summarizes this. Sin and death is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness, our deepest life, our deepest life abundant, our deepest joy. Until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. When we look to Jesus and we follow him, we realize that the burden is actually easy and the yoke is light. What led Jesus to the cross was love. What leads us to our cross, to our situation, is love. Now, I have a few questions I want to I sit in and reflect and ask uh, you guys. Um, and the first is, in what ways are we like Peter, who sees Jesus partially but not fully? Peter saw Correctly, you are the Messiah. But then when Jesus told him what it meant to be the Messiah, he said, no, that's not right. In what ways do we treat Jesus like a genie in our pocket that we can just ask for whatever we want, but actually when he calls us to deny ourselves, we say, that's not. We step in front of Jesus and we rebuke him. In what ways are we partially blind to who Christ really is? Second question is, what do I need to die to this week? What do you need to die to this week? The Spirit right now might be bringing one thing to mind that you're very clearly, it's a, it's a habit, it's a sin, it's a relationship, it's a something that you, need, you know you need to die to. Or it might be a thousand tiny ways to die to yourself this week. 
what do you need to die to this week? And the final question is, in what ways are you holding on to your own life? Because we know Jesus clearly says, if you hold on to your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, you will save it. So for the next few minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave these questions on the screen. And um, after I pray, um, I'm going to invite you guys to, at your own time, stand up, come and grab the elements for communion and return back to your chairs. And while you're doing that, take a few minutes and pray and reflect and think and reread this passage. Um, And then after a few minutes, Dave will come up and he'll lead us in communion. So I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done praying, we can uh, take the elements and then reflect on these. Father, we're thankful that um, you call us into uh, living an upside-down life of selflessness and of sacrifice. And Father, open our eyes to see that, the, that you call us, and when you call us, you call us to suffer and die for the sake of others. But you also call us to live a life of life abundance. You call us, and, and you call us to die, but you also call us to participate in your resurrection and live forever. Lord, give us the strength to do that. We cannot do that on our own. Give us the joy to run the race that you have set before us. Father, we love you. Thank you for showing us who you are in this passage and um, continue to convict and encourage and strengthen us uh, today. We love you and we pray all these things in your son's name by the spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.